human beings are messy. We're messy. And a lot of people who are managing today that shouldn't be don't like that messiness. So they don't want to get caught up in the emotion thing. They don't want to know how you're feeling. They just want to say, do this job and get it done by this time. And if not, then we're going to have to have a discussion. That, that's sort of like the way we've managed for a really long time. But something has happened. People make enough money that they can meet their most basic needs. Now that those needs have been met, what happens is, is that unconsciously people start going, wait a minute, like, is this all I get? All this job is, is, you know, I just have to work the way that guy tells me to and do it when and how, and I'm not growing. This person doesn't know me. I'm not actualizing. All these things are exploding inside of people all over the world. Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast, where you learn how to speak fearlessly on stage, on camera, and in person. I'm Nasheen, a leadership communications coach from the Fortune 500 world. And on Speak as a Leader, I talk to leaders from corporate giants like Amazon and Google to startup founders, visionaries, TEDx speakers, and even leaders who have worked at the Pentagon. You will get to know how these leaders learned the art and science of speaking fearlessly on any stage. Let's get started. In one of the languages that I speak, Urdu, we have a phrase called Dilkibad, which literally translates to things that the heart says. A speaker who can really capture the audience's emotions and say what everyone's been feeling is one who can capture the Dilkibad. That, for me today, is Mark Crowley. Mark is a leadership speaker, a consultant, and a change agent for workplace engagement and culture. He is also the author of Lead from the Heart. In a past life, Mark has served in VP roles at JP Morgan. He now writes a leadership column for Fast Company, and his work has been featured in USA Today, The HuffPost, Stanford University, The Seattle Times, and many more places. Forbes magazine says that Mark's Lead from the Heart thesis represents the future of workplace leadership. Mark is no stranger to objections like, leading from the heart? Isn't that something that only soft people do? Or, sure, leading from the heart is fine when things are going all right, but when it comes to crunch time, you have to really lead from the brain. In today's episode of Speak as a Leader, Mark will share how thinking from the heart and thinking from the brain are not mutually exclusive and how leaders can have a more meaningful impact if they're able to lead and speak from the heart. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark, on Speak as a Leader. I am so excited to talk to you. I've read your book and I had so many questions to ask you. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you in this podcast episode. Everything you just said makes me excited, Nasheen. So thank you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it as well. So for those people that may not have heard of you or may not have read the book yet, do you want to do a short intro just talking about a little bit about your journey, especially when it comes to leadership and your personal connection with leadership that might lead us into also why you wrote the book? So very, very big question, right? Um, I I think the big picture is, is that, you know, the way that I grew up was, was uh, 
uncommon, we'll call it. Although some people have told me I had the same exact experience you did. But of course, no one can have the same experience that you had, but they can have similar experiences. And I will just say that my mom died when I was nine, came as a very big surprise. And my father raised me and he was an emotionally and psychologically abusive person and brutally like just beat down my spirit, crippled my sense of well-being. And then when he had done a pretty good job of that, he kicked me out of the house right after I graduated from high school with no money, no support. I basically never saw him again until 15 years later when he was dying. And uh, But for some reason, I made a pivot and I decided to give people who work for me unconsciously everything that I always wanted and didn't get growing up, which was safety support, interest, appreciation. How'd you do on your test? Congratulations. Let me help you pick out the next class. Thoughtful direction. Um, making people feel that I was their advocate, that I had their back, that they knew that basically I loved them is what it came down to. And I did all this without ever realizing that it was connected to how I was raised. It wasn't until I was in my mid 40s, like 43 years old, where someone who worked for me said, you know, you manage people very, very differently, don't you? And from that moment on, it was this light bulb that went on. And I, I started to realize that, oh, my God, like I did this. But look at what happened. All these people that were working for me were thriving and doing incredible things. And I just kept getting promoted, like promoted so many times that I kept thinking, like, do they know what they're doing? Like, do they know who they're promoting here? Because, you know, going back to what my father told me, I didn't deserve any of these. Right. But then. This organization that I was working for got bought and it was the companies, the leadership repelled me and I left and I decided I'm just going to write a book. I'm going to use this time to write a book. But I only had the intention of talking about the things that I was doing with people that made people do such great work until a friend of mine said to me, you know, you're going to have to explain why this works, right? You're going to have to teach people. Otherwise, they're going to think you needed a shitty childhood in order to lead this way. And now, she and I had never thought of that. And it was like such an obvious thing. So I spent a year and a half looking for as much evidence as I could possibly find to validate the premise that I was affecting and always had been affecting the hearts and people. And so I found it. And that's what led me to not only writing the book, but calling it Lead from the Heart because the discovery that I made is that the heart actually plays a huge role in motivating human behavior much more than we ever realized. Thanks for that, for that great intro and for leading us straight into um, the heart of the discussion. This is such a bad one. I hope you'll forgive me for that. <laughs> so something I, I really loved and that really struck me right from the beginning as I started reading the book, it was that you're not just talking about leading from the heart, you're actually writing the book from the heart. And for those of you who will hopefully go on to read the book, you'll see that Mark tells the story that he just told us. Uh, he tells the story, of course, in a, in a much more profound, detailed way, right at the beginning of his book. And that is, that is a bold way. That's what I thought when I was reading it. This is a bold way to start a book on leadership linking it straight back to your childhood and everything that you experienced. And I see that in the very initial chapters, you're already addressing all of these questions that we have in mind that 
we have been conditioned to ask, we've been taught to ask about the heart, about leading with emotion, about leading from the heart, about listening to your heart, about how that could be a sign of weakness, how that could be a sign of irrationality. And we have, and you you trace that evolution for us, which I find really powerful and it really speaks to so many of us. You're very smart. Um, you, you, you captured a whole lot in your understanding. Um, first thing I need to tell you is I would love to tell you that I'm the genius that thought of that. Um, the truth is, is that despite the fact that I had a very successful career after getting kicked out and trying to figure out how to graduate, I went on and had a really good career and I've made a very good success of my life. Something about writing the book brought me right back to my father. It was like my father was sitting right there telling me, you're never going to write a book. You're not an author. You don't have anything to say. And it was like painful. Like it wasn't like just a voice. It was like oppressive, like taking the oxygen out of you. So convincing that I didn't think that I could do it. And so my wife actually said, you should just at least have a conversation with Lisa, thinking Lisa might have some answer. And what she said to me was, she said, you need to tell your story in the book. And you need to make it the preface of your book, because that's what people are going to resonate with. And you need to go write it now. So I started to do it. And what I realized was I had to relive the whole sequence of events in order to tell that story. In order to take you as the reader through the journey, I had to relive the journey. And I thought it was going to kill me. It was seriously the most painful thing even now. But what it did was it, it, it allowed me to then go on and finish the book and write the book with confidence because I had gotten over that. But what's happened is, is that people have cornered me when I speak or whenever I'm, you know, whenever they, I'm around people that have read the book and they just say, that was me. I had that experience. I had something like that. And I think that's what her name was, Lisa. And I think what Lisa was trying to tell me was that's where your impact is going to be is get into the humanity of people. And, and if you can connect with people in their humanity, then you're going to be much more open to leading people with humanity, which is what we've whitewashed out of management. I hope that's clear. Absolutely. I think that as we go through life, we add more and more filters between our hearts and our brains. At least that's how I feel. I've kind of gone through life where I've, I might have started at a young age by, you know, speaking more or understanding more things based on my intuition. But now, throughout the years, the, the, the years have added more and more filters in between my heart and my brain. At least that's, that's something that I kept thinking about as I was reading the, your book. And I've, I really am, or I, at least uh, in terms of being conditioned, I've really been conditioned to be one of those people who really elevate logic and reason and think that, you know, logic and reason are the things that, that my whole universe should be based upon. But now when I read the book, when I read the book, I understood that when you can 
really kind of erase those boundaries, break those those barriers and try to get to to the core, you'll find that if you're able to understand the world and express what you're understanding from the heart, it really resonates with people. And that's what you're what you were talking about, connecting with their humanity. And since I'm very passionate about communication, I kept thinking about everything you were saying from the lens of communication and expression and thinking about how people can actually express what they're understanding. Kind of if you're shifting this mindset from this this elevated focus on the brain and logic and reason to a focus on the heart, how is your communication going to shift? How are you going to change the way that you're expressing things to the world? And I wanted to ask if you've, um, what, what, what do you think about that in terms of the external expression of this mindset shift? Somebody told me a long time ago that, um, like, the way she presented it to me was, she said, you know, your book has an energy to it. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, because people can feel the energy, your energy, when they read it. Like, you're, you're inside of them. It's not just words on a page. And it validated something that I learned to do when I was managing people. So one of the foundational ideas of the book and my whole leadership philosophy is that we're not the rational beings that we think we are. We're much more driven by feelings and emotions. Like up to 95% of the time, our motivations are driven by feelings and emotions, right? So... We in business think that we need the smartest brainiac people to run businesses, and they're not thinking the way you are. They're not saying, hey, as I get older and more experienced, I'm going to try to balance these out. They're saying, keep your feelings at the door. I don't need to know what's going on in your personal life. Um, this is a rational business, so don't tell me what your intuition say. We say all this stuff in business, right? So... I just had this understanding, and this, of course, goes back to my upbringing. But what it taught me was everything that you write, everything you communicate has an energy that people can feel. So I manage big teams, and in the era that I was managing, because it's been like, you know, 13, 14 years now since I've managed big teams of people. Email was the big way to communicate with people. We weren't using video, we weren't using YouTube, we weren't using Slack, so we'd send emails out. And I'm communicating to people that report to me, and then they are sharing that information with people who report to them and down. So it, it you know, it was like thousands of people. So it was a very big thing that how that landed on people, I was always aware how do I want them to feel? And so I would go out of my way to be encouraging. I would be, go out of my way to praise and thank and give people hope and tell them that I believed in them. Not for any lack of sincerity, because I did believe it, but that I was doing it in person. And I was doing it intentionally because I knew the impact that it could have and needed to have. And I took it so seriously that your insight is so spot on that I had an assistant for 15 years who interestingly edited the very first edition 11 years ago, 12 years ago. And I would give her these emails and I would say, read this and tell me what you think. 
ironically, right, asking her what she thinks. What I wanted to ask was, how does this make you feel? But she was smart. And she would come back and she said, do you really want to say this? Do you really want to, you really want to say this? And then I would read it back to myself and I'd realize, no, I don't. And then I would fix it. And it's part of how you can inspire people from a leadership standpoint, but it's also from a communication standpoint, how you become influential. So like in writing my book, I wanted you to feel something all the time. I wanted you to feel like this is truth, what he's talking about. And I, there's no, there's no, there's no persuading me otherwise. And that makes people feel something really powerful and profound, I think. I see this great contradiction that kind of stares us in the face, because if you look at marketing and advertising, if you look at just mass communication in any way, shape or form, a lot of people have worked on this conventional wisdom that, yes, consumers make 90% of their purchase decisions based on emotion. This is why you have so much advertising that just focuses on creating that emotional connection between the consumer and the product. When it comes to social media, people are seeing more and more social media posts and videos and content that resonates with people that has an emotional link that creates that emotion that is coming from a place of emotion and appealing to a place of emotion in the audience. And like you said, somehow when we flip the script and we put it back into the business context, somehow people think that we will become these robotic beings that will exist in this vacuum, this emotionless vacuum when it comes to the workplace. And it's baffling because these are the same people who are making those purchase decisions based on emotion. They're the same people who are clicking like on that video because it appeals to their emotions. So I just don't understand and. I think you've done a great job in, in the book to really unravel some of this for us. Why it doesn't come more naturally? Why does it not come more naturally to us to, to really listen to the heart and then to express ourselves with heart? There are a lot of reasons, but it's actually, it's actually pretty simple. Um, first is that um, from a management standpoint, it's a lot easier to just say, Here's your job. Here's your pay. Do a good job. I might give you a bonus. Do a bad job. I find somebody else to do it. That's our deal. I don't have to get involved in, are you married? And do you have children? And where did you go to school? And what are your challenges in life? And what are your dreams or your career? And I don't have to know anything about you. I can just manage you that way. And that makes my life a lot easier. And the deal we have is you get a paycheck and I get your work, and if it doesn't work, then I have the power and I let you go. So for a very long time in history, people accepted that deal. And the reason they accepted the deal was because they needed to make their meet their basic needs. They need to put food on the table and a roof over their heads and they needed safety. And so I'm gonna work and take any crappy job and any crappy boss and we just sucked it up. And so, there's another thing is, is that human beings are messy. We're messy. And a lot of people who are managing today that shouldn't be don't like that messiness. So they don't want to get caught up in the emotion thing. They don't want to know how you're feeling. They just want to say, do this job and get it done by this time. And if not, then we're going to have to have a discussion. That, that's sort of like the way we've managed for a really long time. But something has happened. And what's happened is, and this is not true everywhere, but it's true 
certainly in major, major countries like Great Britain and, uh, and, and frankly, it's happening in China, but it's definitely happening in the United States um, where people make enough money that they can meet their most basic needs. So if you go back to Maslow and you remember the bottom of the pyramid was safety and security, food, water, shelter. Now that those needs have been met, what happens is, is that unconsciously people start going, wait a minute, like, is this all I get? All this job is, is, you know, I just have to work the way that guy tells me to and do it when and how, and I'm not growing. This person doesn't know me. I'm not actualizing. I'm not being developed. They're always making it, you know, not the work I'm doing is have a purpose and meaning. All these things are exploding inside of people all over the world. And it's the reason that so many millions of people, particularly in the United States, have been quitting their jobs over the last 20 years because they got this shock to their system. They had 20 months where they were working from home and they had all this time to go, do I like my job? Do I like my boss? Do I like my company? And the answer was no, no, no. And it came down to how do their companies and managers make them feel? So we've gotten this shift where we've resisted it up until now because we got away with it. That's how it worked. Business could run. And by the way, there are still companies that I'm sure you're aware of that still want to treat people like robots and not people. It's much easier. And to threaten them with being replaced. But for the first time in my lifetime, People now have the option of going, you know what, the deal you're offering, I don't think I'm going to take it. And they go somewhere else. And it's forcing a consciousness change. Like, what are we going to do to solve this? And I'm saying, erase the board and start all over and think the way you just described, because that's the solution. Yeah, thanks for, for taking us through the, the, the hierarchy of needs. And this is one of the most insightful chapters in the book for me, because we learned so much about that at school. And then later on, we we kind of internalize this, this survival of the fittest. There's actually a, a sentence in your book that I highlighted. Um, survival of the fittest has come to mean survival of the smartest and most brainy. Just the fact that we're still thinking of the world in terms of survival of the fittest, in terms of every man, woman and child for themselves is in and of itself problematic for me. But this statement, it really reminded me of how this belief can have a direct impact on how someone will communicate or how someone will treat their team. Because if someone values survival of the fittest, survival of the smartest and the most brainy, then you can really understand these visionary leaders that everyone respects so much because they have this vision and they they charge ahead and they lead their teams. And then you later find out that they were horrible people to actually work with. And somehow we excuse that in the name of being visionary. We say, yeah, but this person is, is or was a visionary. They They had this vision and look how much they achieved. And the numbers speak for themselves. This whole mindset of, of, you know, the end justify the means is really, for me, quite problematic. And you point that out really well. So, and I think something that important that you're saying is actually the, the end don't justify the means and you're not going to get those results. So is this a contradiction that you sometimes feel that you might need to explain to leaders? Because 
people say that, yeah, I can treat my people however I want. If I get the right results in the end, that's all that matters. Yeah, I mean, um, this is so if you if you were to say to me, if you could change one thing in the world from a leadership standpoint, you only have one magic wand, you get to wave it one time, what would you do? And I would weed out, we'll call it that, anyone who's in a management role who doesn't care about, genuinely care about other people and their success, their growth, their well-being, all of that. If you don't have that in your heart, sorry, going back to your pun earlier, you know, I'm using my own language here. If you don't have that instinct in you, then you shouldn't be managing other human beings. We could solve so much of the world's problems, at least in business and in terms of how people feel about work, if we just made sure that the common denominator of everybody that ever got to be a manager of other people loved other people and doesn't and they're not competing with them they're not threatened by them they're they're they want to see them do well and it doesn't diminish them now there's a small percentage of the world that actually are like this believe it or not like gallup has actually shown that 70 percent of the world's population is principally focused on themselves and there's nothing wrong with that but it's interesting in america we find that 30% of U.S. workers are engaged, fully engaged, willing to do anything and everything to help their boss. And then you look at it and you say, well, 30% of all human beings have an inclination. So it's almost like natural distribution. We just keep hiring people for management roles, but only 30% of them have it. So it's only no surprise to me that only 30% of people are happy in their jobs. This is a big, this is a big, big shift. And the reason it's a big shift is because we conflate all the things that I just described with an inability to drive performance. And so like even human resources, they look away when you've got a toxic manager because they'll go to, let's say you've got manager A and manager A is getting great results, but is a horrible manager in terms of treatment of people. So you go to manager A's boss and you say, manager A is not doing things right here. That person's manager, nine times out of the 10, will say, leave him alone. He's getting the numbers. He's getting the results I need. I don't really care how he gets them. And so this is a big shift that we have. So the interesting thing is, is that when we make this shift, it's not just to be like Mother Teresa. It's not to be, you know, noble. And like all, as much as I would wish to see that all of this would be done out of nobility, out of love and kindness for our fellow human being, that's not what's going to motivate it. Everything that I'm talking about, if you have somebody who loves and cares for people, and is able to focus on the business, that's the win. And that's what we should be looking for. You don't give up one or the other. You just don't tolerate good results for, driven by people that harm other people and make them go home and drink or make them go home and get into arguments with their wife because they're a spouse because they're so unhappy at work. These are the impacts in our world, you know? That makes so much sense. They're not mutually exclusive and they shouldn't be. And perhaps what we're really missing is that 
We're, we're missing that connection between good and great. Perhaps right now or in some situations in some companies, people are still focusing on, on what is all right because it's okay to get those numbers. It's good, but it's not great. And if you can make that leap to great, they will hopefully not even look back and miss what was actually good or what was actually functioning or barely functioning in that scenario. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Instinctively, managers can't buy what you're selling, right? What you just said there, they don't, the, the instinct is that doesn't work. So in other words, if we're getting good results, and the dream would be, wow, wonder if we could ever get great results. So you bring everyone together and you say, hey, what do we have to do to come up with great results instead of good results? Very few people in that room would go, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to start caring more about our people because that's what's going to drive performance. I mean, so that's why there's so much justification and research in the book is to beat the horse, you know, is like to beat the point to death so that people can go, okay, like I'm exhausted. He's got so much proof that this works, that they'll finally change. But it's, <laughs> it's just not our instinct to trust that what I'm talking about is real, you know, and, it, and it's been very frustrating because it's taken a long time for people to take my work seriously on a global scale. People have taken it seriously, and there's a lot of validation for it. But in terms of the explosion of people going, that's right. Like, this is truth, what he's talking about. And we, we need to stop what we're doing and do it this way. The resistance has just been so great. And then you put the word heart in there, and they immediately go, oh, my God, he's a religious nut or a spiritualist or someone who doesn't get business. And, you know, so shut me down. So I just have to keep coming back, coming back. And I'm, I'm just hoping this is the moment in time where people are like, okay, we're not going to fight this anymore. Oh, trust me, I completely get what you're saying. I work in communications, which is famously branded as a soft skill. Oh, that's right. great, Nasheen. You work in soft skills. And communication makes the world go around. It, it makes us function in a, you know, a well-functioning society if you don't focus on having good communication skills, good listening skills, good presentation skills. If you're not focused on creating that environment where people can speak out, speak out freely, then it's it's just not going to work. This soft skill is what's going to bring everything down. So I completely get what you're saying, that people are very quick to write off these things as just being not that important when that's actually what's what's going to cause the, the downfall of your company in some way, shape or form. It's going to happen if you're if you're just like ruthlessly pursuing profits. I think it's because... So. Um, we there's some conflict in the world. So let me let me let me um, make this clear. So you hire me, and I'm really smart. And so I'm you know I can do the math and I can do the analysis and I can do all the things that we do in business. But I'm really crappy at managing people. So people start complaining about me. And HR comes to me and says, hey, you know, we're getting some complaints about you, Mark. Like, you know, we, we know you we know you know your business, but you you need to you need to do a little better with your people. This is how the term soft skills, I believe, was born. So 
I think it was born out of fear. Like, I don't know how to do any of that. No one's ever asked me to do any of that. I'm afraid to do any of that. Oh, by the way, as a man, that's not very masculine to be caring about your people. So it's kind of bullshit. But what I'm going to call this is soft skills. You want me to learn soft skills. And that's how it grew and that's how it become a big deal. And it's just so patently stupid. You know, it just is ridiculous because as you're right, I mean, it, from a leadership standpoint, communication is again, how you make people feel. How are you influencing people? Are you punishing people intentionally? Are you scolding them because they didn't get what they were supposed to get done? Are you encouraging them as a means of getting them to, the, to where they need to get to? What feelings and emotions are you creating in people? And so that's just soft skills, you know, and they got it all wrong. Yeah. I want to talk about crunch times for a second. A lot of people... Even people that are advocates of leading from the heart, even if they don't call it that, but they're advocates of it, they sometimes make exceptions for crunch time. And you mentioned this really important thing in the book about negative emotions. Negative emotions arising from the heart affect the cognitive functions and the performance of our brains. And for me, I immediately linked that to times of great stress. And that, for me, seems to be a time where bosses and leaders take the liberty of being stricter, of perhaps being less caring, of, of focusing less on all the things that they know they should be focusing on in general, but they make exceptions. And I immediately thought of some of my experiences because I went through very much kind of a uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde phase when I was a filmmaker Because being on set is kind of like being in surgery where nothing can go wrong, where you have to be following a tight schedule, where you have to make sure everything's working, everyone's, you know, firing on all fronts and you don't simply get time to be caring. You don't get the freedom, the mindset, the peace of mind to work on being caring. We, of course, follow some rules of thumb. You know, people have, my teachers drilled into me, always make sure you say please and thank you, please and thank you. Just drill it into your head. Don't become rude on that, on that film set. But I had people, I had some of my team members completely baffled by this transition that they saw in me because during regular times, they would see me as just, a, you know, a, a nice person, I think and hope. They, they could come up to me with ideas, with suggestions, and I would always be open to them. But on the film set, I would tell them, sorry, I have no time for your ideas right now because they don't matter. And we need to focus on getting this done. And you have to get this done this way. What do you feel about crunch time, and especially when it comes to communicating during crunch times from the heart? Is it really possible? It is. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of work you have to do to get there. So the Jekyll and Hyde scenario that you described is kind of common. Um, and it's common because our worst behaviors as humans tend to come out under stress, right? We become impatient, argumentative, direct, you know, telling people what to do instead of engaging them, right? And we're doing this because we've got all this cortisol going through our body and it's making us you know, behave in really bad ways. So you have to do some work to say, 
I'm going to make another film and I'm going to have those same people there and I'm going to have the same crunch time stress moment. What am I going to do differently then? Like what, how, what would I do that would make that better? Part of it is to say, to tell people, to telegraph, look, I'm, I, I want to apologize now. There may be times where I can be tense and I can be direct and it's not anything about you. It's because I'm a little bit stressed. I'm taking the project seriously or behind schedule or it's not going the way I want to. And I might bark orders at you and just give me the look if I'm doing that to you. And I will, you know, I will get a little bit of, you know, cognizance of what I'm doing, I apologize, and I'll go back to being a nice person again. So this is like a human way of saying, let's, this is going to be a negotiation because I'm going to be, I forget which one was the bad guy with calm Hyde. Um, I'm going to be Hyde every once in a while. But then the other is, is to go and privately work on how can I be less Hyde-like? And so, first of all, when you're the captain of a ship and you hit an iceberg and you got 500 people on the ship. Do you get on the microphone and go, oh my God, we just hit an iceberg and we're going down. You know, who wants a captain like that, right? I mean, who wants that? Nobody. We want the captain to go, ladies and gentlemen, we have had a serious situation here, but we have one of the most talented crews here. We've been trained in this. We want to give you instructions on how to behave, but we want you to know cool heads prevail. We're going to get through this. Now, who, which one do you want to work for? The first one or the second one, right? So it, there's some mindfulness in this. There's some clear sense that I'm going to be a better person when this happens. So it starts with intention. If you have the intention, you'll remember. You're, you start barking orders and then you'll go, oh, that's not the machine that I want to be. And so you back off from that and you go back to saying please and thank you and often to make up for it. And people are like, okay, she's cool. And then it works. So it's a balance of thinking out how I want to be when I get under stress, knowing that I could be a bad Mr. Hyde, Mrs. Hyde, but also giving people the heads up that you can be Hyde every once in a while and you don't mean to be and it's not about them and that you love them and we're going to do great work together, but I'm human too and I may get into this bad behavior. But you can't do that all the time because people, they, it just becomes an excuse, right? But the other thing is, is that going back to this captain of the ship thing, um, what people really need is assurance that they're going to be okay. So I give you a goal machine and I say, I need you to do X widgets, X communications in a month. And you come in at mid month and you've got like not even a third of them. So now as your manager, I'm concerned. I'm like, wait a minute. She's like at 25% at, at mid month. How's she going to do 75% more communications in the rest of the month? So I call you in and I go, what the hell are you doing? Is, does that inspire you? Like, is that going to make you get the other 75%? So what I've learned is, is that most people want to do good work. So start there. 
they don't need to be punished. They feel bad about being behind. And there are just times when that's the way life goes. So if I know you and I've worked with you and I've seen your work and I know the quality of your work and I see this and I go, this is just uncharacteristic of her. Then I'm going to have a conversation and say, hey, what, what's going on and how can I help you? What are we going to do to get there? I know you can get there. I know we're behind, but I believe in you and I want to give you resources if that's what you need because I want to support you. How does that make you feel? My boss cares about me. My boss isn't threatening me with my job. My boss believes in me and has seen the history. This is one of the big things. You miss a deadline this time, but you've made 10 in a row and the manager forgets the 10 and just attacks the one. I mean, what sense is that? So I think it starts with, I want to be the Jekyll and not the Hyde and, and make a commitment to that, knowing that you're going to trip and fall and you're going to make mistakes, but you're going to get better and better over time. I really like the, the captain of the ship analogy, and it really made me think of the, the swan or the duck. I think maybe it's both who, you know, look very graceful on the surface and like underneath the water, they're just like that. Uh, they're just, you know, paddling away and, and, and you don't see that frantic energy. And this makes me, it kind of leads me to believe that being a leader is really about that. It's about making that division between the internal frantic energy, the internal chaos that you're dealing with and not letting it pour out of you to your team and making that that distinction, creating that that barrier and referencing the heart always in that and creating that intention, as you said, having having that intention, making that intention, making the intention well known to people, it really makes a difference because it really tells people that you're trying. Even if you don't succeed, you're making it transparent that you're committed to caring for them, committed to being the kind of leader that can be there for them, even if you don't succeed all the time. And interestingly enough, this actually did end up happening. I did kind of stumble upon this solution along the way. And I did end up telling people, I would tell them, you know, in, in a briefing the day before the shoot, we would have a pre-production meeting. And I would, at the end of the meeting, I would end up telling everyone that, you know, just keep this in mind. My behavior will change tomorrow. And it's because of this. And eventually people did understand. And like you said, you can't just use that as an excuse for bad behavior. And... Creating that personal connection with the team, creating creating that connection and connecting to them on that personal level. That's actually one of the the, the aspects, one of the, the things you highlight in the how part of the book, uh, where and that's one of the ones that really stood out to me because connecting on a personal level is one of the ways that you can lead from the heart. And that personal connection has to come from being able to talk to them, have these honest, heart to heart conversations with them. There are puns all over the place in this. So what I really wanted to, to ask was, if you make that switch between just kind of leading haphazardly, you know, from, from the brain or from the heart or just a mix of the two, if you make the switch to intentionally and purposefully leading from the heart, does your vocabulary change? Does the way that you use certain words and certain phrases, does that change? Do you, should leaders look at the exact words that they've been using so far to communicate with their teams and analyze them and see which ones 
don't fit anymore with that new mindset? Let me think about that. I want to come back to what you said about the hide moments. And that's really the moment of truth with people. So if you treat people really badly when you're under stress, that's what they're going to remember about you. So you could have been the kindest, nicest person. But if they can't count on you when they're feeling stressed, because you're not getting stressed alone, you're, you're, they're stressed too. Whatever's going on, they're stressed. And the last thing they need is a beating from their boss or, you know, an impatient boss, uh, you know, somebody who's not thinking about how they're feeling. So that's why this is so important. As far as the communication standpoint, I, I want to point out that I'm not talking about leading with all heart. I'm saying it's got to be a balance. Right now, it's all here. It's all in the mind. And we have this whole form of intelligence here that has has an enormous impact on our choices and our behaviors, but on the choices and behaviors of other people, and we don't use it. So you've got the same menu of of words. It's just like, like whoever gave you the guidance to use please and thank you, do you realize how powerful that is? Like, I wrote it down because I'm going to tweet it out. Because if you just remember that, please, and thank you. And we think that if I say thank you, Nersheen, so like, so for example, I'm totally impressed with you. This is me speaking honestly. I'm totally impressed with you. I'm honored that you've read my book. You're asking me deeply intelligent questions that completely engage me. And so I want to thank you for that. So that's me speaking truth. Now, any manager that would have the courage to give a compliment like that, many would say, I don't have to do that for another month. Like I just gave her the biggest love kiss, you know, any manager can give. So that should sustain her forever. And I'm like, okay, so let's say tomorrow, you come in, we're working together. I give you this compliment, which by the way, again, is completely true. Um, and But now we're working together and I asked you to do a project and I need it in a week. And you come in and you say, hey, Mark, you know that project you gave me that you needed next week? I got it done and I wanna give it to you. And I'm like, what? You got it done? No. So you show it to me and I'm looking at it and it's like incredible. Like it's everything that I wanted. And I'm immediately thinking, oh my God, now she's given this to me. I can get ahead of what I need it for and I can make my, my side of this project even better. And I'm like deeply grateful to you for getting it done so well and getting it done ahead of schedule. But then I go, I can't thank her again because she's going to get soft around the middle. She's going to, you know, she's going to take advantage of me now if I thank her again. And it's so insane. You can never over appreciate people. You can never be over, you know, unless I go, I love you, I love you, I love you, or you're the greatest, greatest, greatest. I mean, nobody's ever going to do that. In the normal interaction of business, if you just remember, if somebody does something that you like, thank them. Because the more you thank and praise people for something that they do that you like, they'll do more of it. Who doesn't want to be thanked and praised? 
we're, that's humanity. We all like that. So, oh, you like your projects early and you like them done well? Well, then because you thanked me and you made me feel so good, I'm going to do your next project as fast as I can and as well as I can. And this is how you elevate human performance from a leadership standpoint, if you understand that that's how we all work. And so I'm managing you and I'm influencing you to do great work. And if I'm being managed by someone who is, you know, where are you on this? And when are you ever going to get this thing done? And we're behind on this. I'm like, do I want to like overstretch for this guy? You can never please this person. So you just sort of go, you know, I'll get it to you. You want it next week? I'll get it to you next week. You know, that's how it works. Thank you for the kind words. I really, I really felt that. So thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's all because I, I, I read your book. So it is, it is because of all the, the wonderful thought provoking things that you wrote that is making me ask these questions. So it is all because of your great work. And I love that you said you can't overappreciate. I feel like if that is the one thing that people can take away from this conversation, it can really transform the way they communicate with their team. You cannot overappreciate. This is exactly the way that I tell people, you cannot be too good of a communicator. There is no point at which you can say, I've done it all. I have learned how to be a good communicator. My job is done. It's you can continuously improve the best presenters in the world, the best keynote speakers, they re rehearse for days, hours, weeks before they go on stage. And this is like maybe their 20th or 200th time on stage. And they still rehearse because they don't think that they're the epitome of of uh, being a great speaker. So. It's, it's exactly the same for communication. So it really resonates with me. And something else that you were talking about really made me think of when you, when you were talking about, you know, daily work and the daily grind, it really made me think of how very often we're very kind of hardwired to bring in critique, to bring in criticism in our everyday work. And that's something we do all the time. We never think we can be overcritical. We think we're doing it in the service of the project. So it's going to be good. It's going to elevate it to a higher standard. And yet we sometimes only reserve one-on-one -on -one time, you know, those monthly or weekly one-on-one -on -one check ins most likely monthly. You only, we only take that time to really deeply appreciate the team member. And like you said, sometimes we think, oh, okay, we've done it. Our job is done. They understand how great they are. Great. Now we can do the next month and I can critique them as much as I want, critique their work, and it's going to be fine, right? So I see this happening over and over, and I've been a part of this. I've, I've been on both sides and I know it's so easy to get swept up in this tidal wave of projects and pleasing the client or pleasing the investor or pleasing the boardroom that the team is, is the last person that you want to please, the last people that you want to please. So making it a part of, the, of your daily communication, I think, is, is probably vital in this case really evening out the, the the praise, the appreciation, the gratitude with the critique. Nobody's going to accept your critique after a while if you're not praising them a lot. 
So if if you say, hey, you know, this is this doesn't meet my expectations, this work was late, whatever the complaint is, and you just keep dripping on people that way, and then one day you go, you know, you bring in gratitude donuts and you go, hey, you're doing a really good job. Um, it's not enough to make up for all the times. So I'm not a big believer in critiquing people. I'm, belie- I'm a big believer, and I learned this from Adam Grant. He says, tell people what you want them to do more of, less than, and better than. So I'd like for you to do this a little bit better. Spend a little bit more time with it. Like you were talking about speaking, you know, people that practice kind of a thing. Um, and I take this really seriously, by the way. I have a hotel, and I won't tell you the name of it, just in case there's anybody where I live that hears this. But it's a big, major, glorious hotel. And it's they have a lot of meetings there. And so for the last probably seven, eight years, every time I have a speech... I'll go to the hotel and I'll walk around until I find a meeting room. And then I will go give my speech to an empty room probably 15 or 20 times before I ever get on that stage. When I write, I write and I rewrite. I write and I rewrite. I write and I rewrite. So that what people are getting is the best of me. And that's the only way that you can do that. So you have to put the energy into that. But in terms of critiquing people, I just think it's like, hey, if I could ask you to do a little bit more of this or a little bit less of this or do this a little bit better, it's not saying it's not a scold. And I, you know, having been scolded so often, I'm hypersensitive to it, even, you know, now that I'm longer in the tooth, you know, I mean, I'm still sensitive to that. But I don't think anybody is hard you know, has a hard exterior like a turtle that you can beat them up all the time and tell them all the things you're doing wrong and not have them come to resent you. So it's, it's, it's the, going back to your earlier question, how you communicate that you want somebody to do something differently um, or improve has a lot to do with, you know, how, how did you leave them feeling is the question. Right. How are you leaving them feeling hopeful, optimistic? Or if if I don't fix this, I'm going to have to go into fear because my boss is going to fire me. And Daniel Coyle, who's a, a cool author in his book, he said that if you ever have to challenge somebody to really step up, like I want to take Nasheen out of her comfort zone and say, I want you to do this because this is where you need to go. And you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. You, you, and you can feel that in someone, even if they don't express it, right? You can tell that that's, you say, Nasheen, I'm only telling you this because I believe so much in you and see so much potential in you that I want you to get to this rung that I think it's important for you. Now, if I just say, I want you to get to that rung, that leaves you feeling one thing. If I say, I want you to get to that rung, and the reason I want you to get to that rung is because I care about you, and I see potential in you, and I want you to get there, it's a whole different ballgame. It's all a decision as to how you want to frame it up. And I was going to say that, actually, we did go back to that earlier question where I asked you, if you say things a different way, if you're leading from the heart and you were actually answering that question as, and I was listening to this and I was thinking, yeah, actually, Mark, you do 
actually you do change the way that you talk to your team and you're just giving me examples of that. So I work in leadership communications and one of the things I'm fascinated with is how leaders speak versus bad bosses. And I very often use LinkedIn, for example, to ask this question of my audience and it always gets them going. This is one of their favorite questions. I ask them, how does a leader speak versus a boss? And they give such thoughtful responses. People say things like a boss or a bad boss will say, fix it. But a leader would say, how can we fix it? A bad boss might say, finish this by Sunday or by Monday. And a leader would say, what do you need to finish this by Monday? So there are really all of these nuances. And if you're able to really think for a split second and choose your words carefully, all the while coming from a place of intention, like you said, I think it, I think that really sums it up, being mindful and being intentional and being purposeful about keeping your team's interests at the forefront, making sure you're talking to a human being and not a robot, the words will then come naturally to you. You, At some point, if you're, if you're intentional about choosing your words, my hope is that after the fifth or the 15th or the 25th time, it'll just come naturally to you to, you to say things like, how can we get this done? What do you need from me? How can I help? Do you need help? Do you want to look at alternative ways of solving this? Tell me your ideas. Tell me what it is that I can do better. And that's really the point for me where someone starts communicating as a leader, starts speaking as a leader and not just a bad boss. I, I guess the, the fundamental premise of my book is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior, right? So... If you go fix this, as your example, fix this, you're making people feel something that isn't inspiring, it isn't motivating. The other thing is, is that managers feel that we've been taught managers to be fault finders. So, you know, if something's going well, well, that's their job. And if it's not going well, then fix this, right? And that's kind of, and so we, we, we have to realize that just because we're paying people for things, their human needs are to feel appreciated, to feel supported and cared for. And my work is meaningful here and I'm making a contribution and I matter and I matter to you. All of those things are going on in people. So when you say fix this, I go down the checklist, make me feel I matter, no. Care about me, no. Appreciate me? No. How am I feeling? I'm pissed off. All because you said fix this. We are hardwired as human beings to thrive on positive emotions. And we need, and I, you'll, I think you probably read this, we need at least a ratio of four to one positive emotions to every negative emotions. And, you know, people go, well, you know, that sounds crazy. But life is hard, so you don't even have to look for the negative emotions. They happen to you through just living in the world. So if you want your people to be thriving, you should be thinking about how do I give them emotional currency? How do I give them the, ex the experience of positive emotions knowing that that is what creates thriving? So if you know that, and you go back and you go fix this, you realize you're with all that information that you just completely blew it. 
because you gave them a negative emotion when they needed a positive emotion. And when you give them negative emotions, you get worse performance, not better. That makes sense. I think the four to one ratio that you talked about, it applies to all human relationships. It's actually one of the things that our marriage therapist told us as a couple, because both my husband and I were in this tug of war where we kept kind of trying to improve each other and call out, call each other out. And so one of the first things the therapist said that, do you know that the ratio of positive things to negative or critical things that you say to your partner should be four to one? You need to say four positive things and then you can add a critique after that. And it really changed the way that we communicate. It happens, I'm sure this applies to friendships, to the rest of your family. And of course, it applies to, you know, in the leadership arena. And I'm also a big believer that if you're the leader, and it applies to also being on a stage, if you're the speaker, anytime where you're in a role where you're leading, the onus is on you to set the vibe. The onus is on you to create that environment. It's not anyone else's job. If they contribute positively, great. But if the vibe is toxic, you can probably bet that it's your fault in one way or another, because it is your responsibility being at the top to ensure that all of those those boxes are being ticked. And you need to have your own list. You need to have your own checklist when it comes to your leadership and, of course, your communication. So I, I totally agree with that. And to wrap things up... Um, I think one of the, the things that you said in the book, again, struck a chord with me, um, our worst mistake is that we compromise our foundational and fundamental values, what we know in our hearts to be true, and delude ourselves into believing that efficiency alone will make our enterprises more productive and profitable. And this is the vibe of the times, it's the zeitgeist of what's happening right here, right now with the great first, the great resignation, and now quite quitting, that efficiency alone is definitely not going to make us more productive and profitable. So any any last words from you, Mark, to, to wrap up our discussion? You know, I think it goes back to what you were just talking about. The word vibe is an abbreviation for vibration. And vibration is an energetic and so if you think about it, and I didn't really write about this because you just put the word heart on the title and already, I, you know, this, some percentage of the population thinks the guy's woo-woo. And I hope through this conversation that people understand that, that that's not who I am. And that's not, you know, like if you ask people, what was like, what's one word that you would use? So people that used to work for me, if they went up to them and they said, hey, we're taking a poll, what's the word that you would use to describe Mark Crowley? You would probably Nasheen say, well, they'd probably say heart like a hundred times. They wouldn't. They'd go, he's the most demanding boss I ever worked for. You would not guess that from what we've been talking about. My belief is that when you support people the way I supported them, you're you're elevating them. You're giving them everything they could need. You know, I mean, like you're going on a road trip. You got plenty of gas. You got food in the car. You got clothes that gets cold. You got, you know, the car, the new tires, everything's ready to go. So it's like, hey, we can go a little bit faster. We can go a little bit longer because we've got everything squared away. And so I would just say, hey, we're not going to be average here. So I would actually elevate performance. But I didn't get into this notion of vibration, but I want to talk about it only in the sense that 
it pins down what you really said. The leader sets the tone. And the leader needs to realize that they're not part of the collective. So, like, you know, if something bad's going on, you know, in the company, they can't roll over here and go, hey, guys, this is really crap what's going on here, isn't it? They have to step up and be a different person. You have to be the grown-up in the room, if you will. And so the, what I would leave them with is to say, always leave people feeling better than you, got, than you found them. Absolutely. At my first job, when I was a 22-year-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young graduate, one of my boss's bosses told me just a few years into the company, I was at a, at a crossroads at a point where I just was kind of feeling lost and I didn't really know which direction to go and change departments, quit my job, change companies, what should I do? And my boss's boss told me, and now this is about a good 16 years ago, and I still remember the words that he said. And he told me, Nosheen, I think you have extraordinary capabilities. You can pretty much do whatever it is you set your mind to. I believe this. All you have to do is choose. And just saying those words and really meaning them because he had seen my work, he'd worked with me. He was the country manager at the time. He was managing our entire headquarters in the country, like maybe 500, 600 people. He took the time to not just work with me, remember how my work was, and then actually say these words to me. It meant so much to my young, impressionable 22-year-old mind that I carried them with me for the next 16 years. So you're absolutely right. The kind of power that anyone who is a leader or a manager or a boss has is unimaginable. You don't know which intern, fresh graduate, middle manager, team member, peer, colleague is listening to you. And they are, they're listening to you. They're watching you. They're observing you. They're mimicking and mirroring your behavior. So the kind of power that you have as a leader is unimaginable and you have to use it wisely. That is the only way forward. You know, every manager that ever made a difference in someone's life. So one thing I'll say to you, doing the math, you know, you're still in your 30s and that left an impression. You're not going to forget that guy in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, all the way until your last breath. You will never forget it because of the impact that it made. And that's what, if you think about what defines the best manager you ever had, the one that made you want to work hardest and do the, your greatest work who truly inspired you, it's everything we've been talking about. It's just we've been told that's not who you are. But if you be the manager that you've always wanted to have or had once in your life briefly and wish you always had, you can change the world. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to talk to us. Mark's book is Lead from the Heart, and I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. I would love for all of you guys who are listening to go and check it out. It is transformative. It's a beautiful book. Thank you so much, Mark, for writing it. Thank you for taking the time to talking to us on Speak as a Leader. Thank you, Nishina. It was wonderful. Hey, you're still here. 
Thanks for listening all the way till the end. I am super grateful for your support. If you like this episode, please take a minute to leave a five-star review. It would mean the world to me. To know about how I help leaders speak fearlessly, you can check out nsheen.com. That is the first letter of my name, N for Nasheen, with a sheen like Martin and Charlie. See you in the next episode. Till then, speak fearlessly. Fearlessly.